0: Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 337 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Man, this is a three in a row for us, but hey, we're in the middle of something we haven't been through before, so we want to come alongside you. I hope you enjoyed Mike Todd uh, on the last two episodes. I thought they were fantastic, and you will be so thrilled you tuned in again for this one because I've got Steve Cuss. He is my guest. And we are going to talk about managing leadership anxiety, spotting unlikely signs of stress in yourself. Some of the stuff he shared with me really shocked me, like surprised me. It's like, really? That's stress? Anxiety? You kidding me? Anyway, and how to tame your fears in a crisis. So I think you're going to find this helpful. Uh, This episode is brought to you by the Ascent Leader cohorts and by Generis. And uh, yeah, I'm going to talk also at the end about the biggest mistake I think uh, people can make as America reopens and you go back to normal. So I'll do that at the very end in the What I'm Thinking About segment. But anyway, we've got a great uh, episode lined up for you today. And I really hope this is coming alongside you. I know these are really unusual times. And uh, podcast listening overall has gone down significantly in the last two months, but ours has gone up thanks to you. And thank you so much for dialing in, sharing this with your friends, subscribing, and uh, letting us know on social media that this really matters to you. Also, for those of you who leave ratings and reviews, I am so grateful for that. I just want to say thank you. And uh, hey, if you haven't yet made it over to my crisis course, you can do that at howtoleadthroughcrisis.com. I've got some new resources coming up in May that I'm very excited about. But in the meantime, you can get howtoleadthroughcrisis.com for free or text the word CRISIS to 33777. So maybe you've got a transition coming up in your future. Uh, Even five to 10 years out, I transitioned out of the senior leadership role at our church uh, about five years ago. And if that's the case, you probably know that this is a significant moment in your life. So Sean Morgan over at CDF Capital curates custom-built cohorts for senior leaders, and you can apply to be part of one at theascentleader.org. It's a unique living room-style cohort set of gatherings. For this cohort, you will actually be with Kenton and Lori Bishore for three days in Palm Desert, California, That sounds pretty good. Uh, Kenton was a longtime senior pastor of Mariner's Church, which I joke is the spa church. If you've ever been there, one of the largest churches in the U.S. And uh, you'll have some really transparent conversations on the sensitive nature of leadership succession. And you will get personal mentorship from Kenton and Lori and advice from high-level peers. There are limited spots available. So apply now at the ascentleader.org. So I would highly recommend that. One of the things that's happened in this crisis is that so many people, almost every organization's budget has been blown up. And it's, it's just, we've all rebooted. And what do you do if you're a church and your whole giving plan is off? Well, Generis has a brand new resource uh, called Your Budget Just Blew Up. Now what? I'm going to tell you how to get it. But I sat down with their founder and principal, Jim Shepard. And I said to him, we had a number of churches listening who will be in the majority. In other words, giving is not up. Is all hope lost? Or is there a pivot that churches that are struggling financially could make? Here's what Jim Shepherd had to say. Yeah, so if innovation flourishes in a time of disruptive change, so does stagnation for those who are unwilling to embrace the moment. And I would say for those who are, are watching that happen, embrace the moment. Decide for yourself, you know, what is it that's getting in our way? Is our model of ministry? Is our philosophy of ministry? Is the way that we approach things? Are those things that are getting in the way? And if they are, what would we do to address them? I think the other thing, you know, really low-hanging fruit is, if you're, if you, if you're a church with 15 17%, you know, non-plate giving, I use that for all the sources mm-hmm. outside of Sunday morning, And you've watched your friends who have got 60, 70, and more percent of their giving coming non-plate. You realize there's a difference between them and you in this moment. And probably one of the things you do is just think through how can we get more people to give, take all the friction out of it, and encourage people in this season. Well, Jim has got a lot of great advice, and so does Generis. And they put together a free resource for you. It's called Your 2020 Budget Just Blew Up. Now, what? And in this ebook, it's, I had a look through it. It's great, actually. It's got some very practical advice on how to strengthen your church right now to weather the current storm and actually thrive in the months ahead. Generis is making this new resource available exclusively to podcast listeners of this audience before they release it to everyone else. And there's a bonus chapter just for you. You can get it for free. By going to generis dot com forward slash carry twenty twenty. that's generis g e n e r i s dot com forward slash carry. 2020. There's also a support hotline for anyone who needs some in-the-moment assistance. So they've got you completely covered at Generis. Check it out, generis.com forward slash carry 2020. Well, I am so excited to introduce you to Steve Cuss. This was a fascinating conversation. As always, I feel like I get free therapy out of this, so there may be a little bit of that in this conversation, perhaps. Uh, Steve is a pastor of a large church in Broomfield, Colorado, but you'll hear a lot of the interview focuses on his experience as a counselor and uh, back when he served as a chaplain at a Level One trauma hospital, where he learned so much. I didn't even know what like a Level One trauma hospital was, but it's the uh, it's the hardest stuff life throws at you. And uh, we talk about managing leadership anxiety, your anxiety, the anxiety of the people you lead, your team, your congregation. Right now, the anxiety of the world. What do you do with it? This is a fascinating conversation, so let's get right into it. My conversation with Steve Cuss. Well, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kerry. Great to be on with you. Yeah, yeah. And you got that nice Aussie accent going from Perth originally.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I grew up in Perth, Western Australia. was raised by an unchurched family and, uh, yeah, came to Christ as a teenager in Perth. And then I ended up moving to America for my uh, theological study. So I wound up in Tennessee for a while and here I am in Colorado now.
0: You're pretty much an American.
1: You know, it's so funny, right? I mean, I've been I've been living here 25 years. I think I still th- I I think like an Aussie, no no doubt. Um, but my voice has definitely changed. But you know, my my family would say I sound very American now.
0: Yeah, and the Americans would say, "Wow, you sound Australian." Right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's like my dad. He came from Holland when he was 19. And the Dutch say he doesn't speak Dutch and the English say, wow, you have a really strong accent. So he's kind of homeless linguistically, which is good. It's
1: not wrong. Kind of a third culture thing. It is. It's it's a real thing. Yeah.
0: So Steve, we're talking about anxiety and stress and all those things, which, you know, is such a huge uh, point of any kind of crisis you're walking into. And now... The biggest crisis the world has faced in decades, perhaps centuries is on us and leaders are feeling it, particularly by the time this airs. So yes, um, you've got a background in counseling and you started at a level one trauma hospital. I don't even know what that is. Like, what is level one trauma? And I didn't even, even know they had hospitals dedicated to trauma. What is what is that?
1: Oh, yeah. Great question. Yeah, level one trauma is the trauma you don't want to be in. So okay. every every city has at least one uh, hospital where the emerge it's it's the people in the worst shape are sent to that hospital. So level one trauma hospital would have the helicopter, um, and then oftentimes if someone ends up in one ER but they're in bad shape, they'll then get transferred over to the the level one trauma. Wow. So tech, it's a technical term. Uh, I don't know. There's probably a couple of hundred level one trauma hospitals in the in America, at least the United States. Uh, but it's really the level of surgery that someone's able to perform when somebody's been in a car wreck. So I was a hospital chaplain at this hospital. And so multi-car pileups are going to come to us uh, gang fights. One of my most unique experiences was being in the middle of a gang fight in a, a ER waiting lounge. It, it's really the microcosm of any city winds up in a level one trauma hospital. And I was there to be the hospital chaplain or one <laughs> of the chaplains and I was 24 years of age and I'd never seen a dead body before. I'd never experienced grief before. I'd been married a week. And oh. uh, my first day on the job was a 28-hour overnight shift. And uh, it all, that's where it all got started.
0: So you're dealing with literally the most stressful situations anyone could be in in this life for the most it part. Was,
1: it was crazy. Um, you know, 24-year-old, basically a kid, you know, with a brand new Bible degree, um, but no real world experience in ministry and that you know the first day on the job i I'm, I'm literally there overnight i've got my overnight bag and they're touring us through the hospital there's several new chaplains so just to give some context carrie yeah uh, i was a chaplain resident which is another technical term if you've ever watched medical dramas you see medical residents they're medical students doing a residency uh chaplain residency is ministry students doing a residency in a Hospital. So I was there as a chaplain resident. There were six new chaplain residents. They're touring us through and my beeper goes off. And uh, I had four beepers because I, I was the overnight guy. I had the extra on-call stuff. And I, I, I remember saying to the, the supervisor, Randy, I said, okay, now which beeper is this one? Because I was getting the more confused. And he said, oh yeah, that's, that's the code team. And the code team is anytime somebody's heart stops, mm. anywhere in the hospital, the chaplain has to go. And again, if, if you've watched your hospital dramas, you see the doctors and nurses and they're running in with the cart and the paddles and the commands. What they don't show on the TV show is there's almost always a chaplain with the loved ones and you're you're sitting on the carpet oh with God. your back against the wall out in the hallway. The doors open right behind you. You can hear everything going on. And of course, doctors and nurses, they have something to do. They get to command and they get to say clear, try to save a life. Your job as a chaplain is to sit as much as a non-anxious presence as you can with the family and just wait. So that's the code team. So the beeper went off. It's the code team. And I I, I said to Randy, okay, um, what do I do now? Because we hadn't had any training. And he said, well, I guess we're about to find out, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I looked at him because I was the young kid. I was the youngest by a good decade on, on the new group. And I thought he was pranking the young kid, but he wasn't. He was dead serious. And, um, and I said, okay, well, what if I make a mistake? And he said, oh, uh, this year you're going to make hundreds and hundreds of mistakes. And that was my, the extent of my training. And so three minutes later, I'm in an intensive care waiting lounge. There's 12 to 15 family members. The matriarch had suddenly died on the surgery table. They couldn't revive her. So by the time I got there, she had died. The doctors had told the family and I showed up maybe 30 seconds or a minute later after the doctors had told them. And people were screaming. Uh, I I, I mean, it's just one of those things you'll never forget. There was a woman headbutting the wall just in a rhythm. There was a woman vomiting in a trash can. Um, the whole room was just absolute mayhem and my job was to do something. And that was my very first encounter for a year of uh, level one trauma chaplaincy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that got your interest in how do you help people and your book, by the way, which our mutual friend, Kevin Queen from Point Nashville, he said, Carrie, you got to get to know Steve Cuss. Uh, I guess you guys have gotten to know each other. Your yeah. book's called Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. And yeah. as much as that introduced you to their anxiety, I want to talk a little bit. I want to drill down on our anxiety, yeah, my anxiety, because you got yeah. 40,000, 50,000 listeners hearing this yeah, right now. And they're in the middle of some pretty intense anxiety. And yeah. I want to start by how you manage leadership anxiety. So let's go, let's go back to pre-COVID for a minute. Yep. Yeah. Leadership is tough at the best of times. People burn yes. out all the time. Uh, anxiety, stress, depression, they're all very endemic for leaders. Um, but I would love to know, what were some of the major stressors, if you can call it that, even prior to COVID? And then we're going to talk about how COVID elevated sure. everything.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So let me just take you back to that intensive care lounge. And then obviously I'm a lead pastor now. I'll talk about you know, leadership anxiety too, because they are connected. Yeah. You know, you put a young guy in an intensive care waiting lounge when he's the chaplain. His job is, or at least he believes his job is to do something. Everything I was trying to do with that family, none of it was working because they're in shock. And now what's happening? Yeah, what what did
0: you try to do? I'm just curious because oh, you're, you're sure. bringing me back to a few moments in my life.
1: Oh, where... my goodness, Carrie. You know, you I walk into that room and there's doctors and nurses in the room. They're all wearing the white lab coats. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, because literally the day before I'd been on my honeymoon, this was such a. <laughs> Massive, like baptism of fire. And I remember thinking to myself, well, the doctors and nurses are here. They'll know what to do. So I just kind of took a step back. And it literally was not an out-of-body experience, but I I kind of describe it like the old days of the DVD director's commentary where you're observing the movie, but you're not in it. Mm -hmm. I was kind of watching it as if I wasn't there. Next thing I know, there's no doctors and nurses in the room. And of course, they've said to themselves, well, thank God the chaplain's here. He'll know what to do. (laughs) Because no one knows what to do in the face of grief. And med school um, didn't
0: cover that. I have lots of medical friends, right? In the same way that seminary
1: didn't really cover that. Yeah, that's right. No, you can only learn it on the fly. And that really was that moment. I mean, I couldn't have said it at the time, but that moment really was the beginning of my awareness for the first time in my life that I had this whole inner life under the surface that boils up like a volcano when I'm under pressure. And it's connected to the story I tell myself about myself, uh, it's connected to childhood triggers. It's it's connected to a lot of things. And so, for example, in my case, I believe the lie that I should always know what to do in any given Ooh. situation. And I think that is a common struggle for almost every leader I know yeah. is we tend to believe that we're supposed to know. Uh, and and uh, another particular for me, uh, one of the things I do in the book is I break down, every one of us, carry have unique sources of anxiety that are unique to each of us. And that's related to childhood and Enneagram, and it's quite a complex thing. But in my case, for example, I'm a chronic people pleaser, always have ah, been. Uh,
0: so are so many pastors. Oh So many my pastors gosh. are.
1: Yep. Uh, and then some other leaders are perfectionists. They believe the lie that they have to get it right the first time, every time. Yeah. Now I don't actually operate that way, but I've got friends who do. So we all have these unique, uh, things that if we don't get them, we get anxious. Right. But then we also have a universal set of circumstances that no matter what, if you and I are in the same circumstance, it doesn't matter how we're wired, it doesn't matter our enneagram number, it's going to generate anxiety for us. Mm-hmm. And one of the universal sources for a leader is when you're supposed to do something and you don't know what to do. That's just a mm. a go-to that will generate anxiety in your life. And So there I'm in the waiting lounge. And uh, so what I tried to do is I tried to speak to the room. I I remember the very first thing I said to them is I I just said, hey, could someone tell me what happened? Because I didn't even know what had happened. And of course, no one even knew I was in the room. At, At some point, the charge nurse came in and I'd never met her. I'd been on the job for about an hour. We'd just been touring the hospital she comes in and I can already tell from my body language, she's upset at me. I've never even met her. She's already mad at me. And I, I look at her and she says, come on, chaplain, we need to get the family in. They need to visit their mom. They need to get out. We need the bed. We have to turn the sheets. We've got another patient waiting. Let's go. So, one of my chronic needs is I need to please a stranger. Uh, mm. I've, I've always been this way. It's weird. And so what happens is if you're not aware of what's going under the surface in you, you end up operating out of false needs instead of what the situation really requires. So instead of caring for this family, now I'm trying to please the nurse. Hmm. Now, every leader, this is what was the gift of chaplaincy for me is it put me in daily death and trauma. I I attended to about 300 deaths the year I was a chaplain. I did hospice work, end of life care. Crazy experience for a guy my age. But what it did is it just gave me like a crucible by which I now see all leadership because all leadership is some form of vulnerable experience. Every one of us as leaders, we're putting ourselves out there. We're we're leading in unknown territory. So what I try to coach leaders to do is just to really start to pay attention to what's known as chronic anxiety, which is a particular form of anxiety that happens, chronic anxiety shows up when you don't get what you think you need that you don't really need. So I believe I need that
0: a little bit. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah. So I believe I need people to like me. That's not actually true. I can actually survive. I can actually thrive without people liking me. But if I think someone doesn't like me, I get anxious Gotcha. Uh, okay. I believe I need to always know what to do, but that's not true. I can actually survive without knowing.
0: So, what to can do. I give you another example? I'm Please. I'm not uh, a people pleaser. You know, everybody has, unless you're a sociopath or a psychopath, you sure. probably have some some people pleasing in you. But mine would be performance. If I felt I didn't do a good job, or you didn't see the good job that I did, then that you're saying would trigger anxiety in me.
1: Yes, that's right. That's that's a great example, actually, Kerry. Okay. Like, if if you're able to name, I'm the kind of person that believes that I need to be productive, but you're also going a little deeper for us. You're also saying I actually need to be noticed for my productivity. Is that? Oh yeah, accurate? I've spent a
0: lot of time unpacking this stuff.
1: <laughs> I'm sure you have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah most people yeah. our age, and and I know you've also written a book quite similar to this. Like you've done yeah. a lot of your own deep work. Yeah, yeah. So then, what I would be doing is is encouraging somebody like yourself. Okay, well, what happens next? Like. When you don't get that pat on the back, what what shows up in your body? Uh, a lot of leaders, particularly type A driven leaders, they would be listening to this and they'd be saying, well, I'm not, not really an anxious person. Yeah, That's because true. they say anxiety is, is worry and fear and they don't tend to worry much. They're not afraid of much. But chronic anxiety actually is what you do next when you don't get what you think you need. Uh, and so maybe it's that you're chasing someone down for a meeting, you know, in early in my leadership at the church, people would, we were a small church, people would leave and then one of the elders maybe would contact them and they'd say, well, you know, Steve just didn't reach out to me enough. He didn't, you know, we didn't get together very much. And, and because I'd felt like I'd let them down, I would try to lunch them back into the church, if that makes sense. (laughs) Right.
0: You're reading no one's mail here, Steve.
1: Right, right, right. So I'd like lunch them back into the church. I remember the moment where I'm I'm waiting for a guy. The only time he could meet was five AM. Do you know how hard it is to find somewhere that's open at five AM?
0: Yeah, no so, kidding. That that's right? a story in and of itself. I can only meet at five AM.
1: We're sitting uh, at I'm sitting at this diner at five AM, he stands me up and I'm like, what am I doing? Because I'd lunch them back into church and I couldn't maintain that. And then they'd get angry and leave again, of course. But where you start having breakthroughs as a leader is when you can name this false need, this chronic anxiety, and then you can name, what do I do next that's crazy? And, and hmm. Carrie, if, if people, if your listeners aren't sure what they do next, all they have to do is ask a loved one and the loved <laughs> one will tell them that most people around us See, you Give me it. some
0: examples. So you would try to buy someone back into the church. I'm going to take you for yep. lunch. We're going, to, yep. we're going to hang out. What would be some other examples? It would be like, I might I might say, oh, well, did you see this? Or I might start self-promoting or something like that. Right, right? that's right. Yeah, in your case, you
1: might do some subtle or not so subtle promoting of yourself. Uh, An example from my life, I I uncovered a false need about 10 years ago. I've been a lead pastor for 14 years. So I've been a, a regular preacher 14 years. I've been in ministry 25, but preaching regularly 14. About 10 years ago, I realized as I was doing this work myself, Oh, well, I believe the lie that every single sermon I preach must be gold standard. Um, and and what would happen is if I if I wasn't happy with a sermon, I'd be deeply depressed. Well, not deeply depressed, but I'd be really down. But if I really liked the sermon, it was worse. I'd put myself under even more pressure for the next one.
0: That you thought be, it was great, but somehow it missed the mark.
1: Or how am I going to top it? Oh, gotcha. Okay, right? Got how it. am I going to, yep. now that was so good, now I need to top it. Um, and, and so what that looks like is, is I needed after every sermon, after every sermon, I needed some kind of a golden retriever pat on the head that would be some version of someone saying, this is the most amazing message I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Like, like people would, you know, maybe in my fantasy, people would say Jesus himself could not have constructed the message you gave. Now here's where it gets crazy. Carrie is I put that pressure on my wife
0: now I was like, "Were you at every lunch on Sunday with my wife and I when I was in my thirties? That was right? the conversation
1: right now here's what's true carrie right is is i I now preach about thirty five times a year. I used to preach like yeah. forty five to fifty yeah I preach about thirty five times a year. I've got about twenty to twenty five good messages in me, and none of us know which ones it's going to be It's <laughs> just the that's the nature of it, but I pressured my wife she needed to love every message like she mm-hmm. no longer has the right just like everyone else in the church, to disagree with it, hate it, be bored by it, all the normal reactions that anyone's going to have once in a while. So I'd, I'd go home and, and I'd say, I, I wasn't vulnerable enough to say to my wife, I need a pat on the head right now. So in, instead I'd say, hey, honey, um, how m- m- was church? And she'd say, oh, it was fine, it was fine. Oh, and then I'd say, Well, how, how, how'd you like worship? You know, I'm Mm -hmm. fishing, But, uh, but the good news of the gospel is Jesus died to free me from needing to live for every sermon being gold standard. That would just be like one example kind of broken down in, okay, what's the lie I believed? And then what's the crazy impact on me and others? And so I've actually been free for about 10 years of needing every sermon to be gold standard. The crazy thing is I still have a driving passion to be the best communicator I can be. It's not that I end up some hippie smoking weed, not caring what people think. It's that I'm no longer in the grip of this tyranny. And that's what chronic anxiety is. It it gets us in in a tyrannous grip. Uh, and, it, and it takes us off the gospel. That that would be my big idea.
0: Isn't that interesting? You know, I've had a similar experience. I, I think most people would say I'm a better communicator than when I was locked in the um, performance cycle that yeah. I've actually gotten a lot better, but I need it less. I don't yeah. need it to be the best message ever. Um, real quick, because I want to get into crisis management and leadership. What are some of the other sources of chronic anxiety or uh, some other examples, because, you know, leaders do carry a lot of pressure Uh, in the corporate world, in pastoral ministry and church leadership. It's just a lot of pressure. You're responsible for hundreds of volunteers, millions of dollars, thousands of people, dozens of people, hundreds of people, whatever your particular numbers happen to be. And people feel that any other like general stressors that leaders would be under outside of wartime conditions or crisis conditions. oh yeah
1: great question so many Carrie and and I know you you know I know you're very aware and there are so many pressures so th- there there are sources of anxiety within us that's what we just covered but then there are these environmental what I call in the book internal and external these are the ones that are common to us all and and there are 19 of them wow uh, so I'll give you I'll give you a couple of examples anytime you're in a triangulated relationship, you're going to be anxious. So, a triangulated relationship would simply be any relationship that has three people in it that should only have two people in it. Right. So, gossip is always going to generate anxiety because it's always a triangulated relationship. Um, every middle school relationship you've ever seen, uh, you're a dad, right? You've got kids?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I got two boys. Yeah. Yep. I
1: thought so, yeah. So, you know, you picture any middle schooler where where um, Cindy goes to David and Cindy says, hey, David, uh, Jane really likes you. And if you like her, you tell me and I'll go back and tell Jane. That's a triangulator relationship. Yep. Um,
0: Lots of anxiety any, right there. <laughs> always.
1: And, and particularly, uh, you know, whether you're a faith leader or a business leader. So l- l- let's talk about um, in our staff meetings, every one of us have in our organization a person who always talk, speaks up first, person who never speaks up unless they're spoken to. Every team has those people that have the meeting after the meeting. Mm -hmm. They have their own little side meeting. That's a triangulated relationship. Yeah. So anytime there's indirect communication, the leader is going to be anxious. Uh, Another source of anxiety that's common to every human is called a double bind. And that's two situations where no matter what you choose, you lose. So... uh, Jimmy comes down Christmas morning to open his gifts, and he's got two gifts under the under the tree, and he opens them, and they're both flannel shirts, and one is red and one is blue, and they're the same company, same just different colors, and he likes them both. And later in the day for Christmas dinner, he comes down for Christmas dinner, he's wearing the blue shirt, and his mum says, "Well, what was wrong with the red shirt? Didn't you like the red shirt?" That's a double bind. Yep. Now. So the reason it's internal and external, some of us put ourselves in internal double binds. If 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 you struggle to make a decision, you're prone to double binding. And if you finally make the decision and you spend the time regretting and wondering what the other decision would have been, that's a you're in a double bind. So on the most base level, if you ever if you have a loved one, you go out to a restaurant with that loved one and they take forever to order, they're probably double binding themselves right there on the menu. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, like, man, if I order the burger, maybe I should have gotten the salad or whatever.
0: I hear Um, you. Yeah, Yeah, you know, a lot of moments flash through my eyes. And it's really interesting. I think as we've gotten healthier, like one of the things is no indirect communication on my teams, period. If you have a problem, you go direct to the person. You don't triangulate. That really is a chronic stress anxiety reducer for everyone, not just the leader, but the whole team. That's right. Well, we could do the whole podcast on normalized anxiety, which we probably will at some point in the future, but these aren't normal conditions. And all of a sudden COVID comes along. We got coronavirus leadership. The world grinds to a halt. It melts down. Um, Thousands of people are dying. Um, Everyone's in lockdown. I mean, oh my goodness. Um, When you look at the elevation of stress and anxiety as a result of what we're going through right now, can you talk about just in a general sense, how that elevates stress and what people are just describe for us? Cause I think uh, I've talked about this with a lot of leaders, Steve, and you and I talked about it before we started um, recording, but like a lot of us just go into as leaders kind of siege mode. I call it siege yeah, mode. It's like, right. okay, we got to pivot. We got to be hundred percent virtual, hundred percent digital overnight. All right. Everyone still has their job, or I got to make some layoffs, or I got to call all the investors, or I got to call all the, um, you know, the donors, the key donors, or I got to do this, or I got to do that. We're just in siege mode and we don't always, you know, we know we're stressed, but it's almost like we're, we're just in that, that panic scramble mode. What is going on in those early days when our stress gets elevated by things outside of our control? Yeah,
1: that's such a great question, Carrie. I I think it helps to have a general understanding of a a theology of anxiety. I I think anxiety is actually a spiritual force and that I I think we don't take it seriously enough Hmm. because we don't see it as a threat. You know, most leaders are prone to action. So when we're anxious, we act more.
0: Isn't that interesting?
1: Uh, Yeah. And so you're seeing a lot, and, and I know a lot of your listeners are pastors. We're seeing so many pastors, like triple the amount of content they're producing yeah now, i want to be I want to be real careful, Carrie, because I think the the heart behind producing more content for your people is a is that's a good heart. yeah, but I would just encourage leaders to ask, why are you doing it? what what are you trying to accomplish? um because some of the content we're producing is more to feel the need to do something than it really is to help our people. Mm. And that was an early lesson I had to learn as a chaplain. My first three months of chaplaincy the amount of times I would say something to somebody in grief because I didn't know how to simply walk into the space of pain they were in. And, and leaders are particularly prone to this, carry. When somebody's in a real difficult situation, we tend to need to shrink their problem down to a size we can manage so that we can then tell them what to do and we're not aware that that's actually an anxious response. So I wanna be careful. Yeah. I'm not saying that every type A leader is acting anxiously. I don't...
0: No, I, no, no, I would, but I hear that. My response in a crisis is always to do something. Let's and do it. What, what are we going to do? Yeah, I've produced a lot more content. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah, and again, I'm not saying all oh, the content is a problem or it could be a gift, but just to pay attention to ourselves, a, a classic leader, because we are others focused, because we're driven, we want to be productive, we're usually the last to know when we're anxious. Hmm. So... One of the early lessons I learned as a chaplain when I was on the code team is one of the code doctors pulled me aside. I'll never forget it. And he said, hey, when somebody's heart stops, first take your own pulse. And that was just this simple little idea that, listen, take care of yourself Mm -hmm. before you act. Just that little pause. Uh, I think flight attendants, right? Every time you fly, they say, in the unlikely event that we're going to lose cabin pressure, that statement was obviously written by a lawyer. Yes, but, true, but the true. Next In the unlikely
0: event of a water landing, it's like, right, why do you say right. that every time? That's right. Anyway.
1: But then they say, you know, oxygen masks will lose cabin pressure, oxygen masks will drop. First, put the mask on your own face before helping others. And, and, and you got to ask yourself, why are flight attendants smarter than a whole lot of leaders? And I do think it's because we don't believe that attending to ourself is sometimes the way to grow our capacity to lead in anxious times. And so when Jesus calls us to love our neighbor, there's actually two ways we can faithfully fulfill that command. One is pouring ourselves out, dying on a hill. That's true. Most leaders I know, that's our go-to. But the second is filling ourselves up and loving and caring out of the overflow. And I think this is an opportunity for our leaders to get real clear on What's my default? Because my default is I always pour it out. I, I mm. pour it out, 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 out. And then suddenly I'm running on fumes and I'm, I'm surprised. Um, so what, I think what's going on in COVID is there's tremendous anxiety because no one knows what to do. There's very few people in the world that actually know what's going on. So true. And, and so we're anxious in ambiguity. Ambiguity is always a source of anxiety and for most Type A leaders, not knowing what to do, particularly if people are asking you to do something, you're going to be more anxious. Second thing, Kerry is—is is obviously I wrote about yours and theirs in the book. Anxiety is always contagious in any group,
0: <laughs> right? And
1: and the most anxious person in the room has the most power. You, know, you just think about whatever. Oh, wow. St- yeah, whatever staff meeting you ran. You already know who the most anxious person in the room is. Not only that, everyone in the room knows who the most anxious person so the is. the most
0: anxious person in the room has the most power. Yeah. Can you can you unpack that? Because that's not always a healthy dynamic. Oh, it's not it's,
1: it's it's why pastors leave churches. Because they they don't know how to manage one anxious elder that infects all the other elders. Oh, wow. You know, anxiety spreads the way a virus spreads. It's it's hmm. highly contagious. And the only antidote is a leader who is able to walk into an anxious situation with calm presence, with in, in, what I'd say theologically is incarnational presence. Mm. Uh, and that's how you can de-escalate a room. And so whatever group, whether it's a family or a staff or an entire country, we all catch each other's anxiety. Uh, social media is a, a virus spreader. So I know one of the things they're studying with COVID is is the super spreaders? You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook is a super spreader of chronic anxiety. Uh, we're all catching it from each other, so that's that's hmm. why we're anxious. And then uh, I, I feel like I'm going on a little, carry, but I'll just quickly mention and feel free to pick apart what you want. No, this is rich. Keep going. There's two other sources of anxiety. The legitimate one is acute anxiety, and that is an actual, real threat. It's not a perceived threat. It's not like, well, this person doesn't like me. It's Actual life and death is going on. Our family got the news yesterday that somebody, my wife, used to teach uh, that their mother died of COVID. Wow. Um, and then that that final category would be grief, which is related to anxiety but is a different thing. So what what our leaders can do is they can take the tangled mess of anxiety and they can take some time every day to detangle it so it's not this overwhelming thing that has us in its grip. And we can start to notice things when, when a group's getting anxious, we can start to notice when we're getting anxious. And then we can start to figure out, am I grieving? Because that's different. Now, obviously, yeah, I want to get to grieving. Don't let yeah. me miss that. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, so these are deep things and this is long work, but this is how we can start.
0: I want to go back to uh, a phrase you've used a few times. I don't know whether it originally goes back to Edwin Friedman, but the idea of non-anxious presence. Yeah. And uh, I did a teaching in a course I did called How to Lead in Crisis, which, you know, nobody really knows how to lead in crisis. I just did no. the best that I did. Yeah. I could pull together and try to help some leaders with it. but. Um, I did some research around Friedman and looked at what he said in his book, uh, Failure of Nerve, Failure which of nerves, is where yeah. I think he, he coined that phrase. Yeah. And it means something very different. Uh, I, you know, the, when I heard it quoted just as sound bites, you know, we live in a soundbite culture, a Twitter culture, uh, I thought it meant kind of a Zen presence, but that's yeah. not what he means at all. No. So can you define what you mean when you say the leader walks into the room you have that really anxious elder, that really anxious executive pastor or groups person who's like freaking out on you. Yep. <laughs> and how, how do you disentangle yourself from that?
1: Great. Great question. Yep. There's there's two tools and, and it's like going to the gym. So when you first start using the tools, you'll feel a bit out of shape, but you mm-hmm. can build these muscles. The first thing any leader can do is they can pay as much attention to process as they are to content. So content is what we're saying. So you and I right now mm-hmm. are trading content. Process is the way that you and I are re- relating to each other. And if a leader pays as much attention to process as they do to content, they can de-escalate the anxiety in the room. So what that looks like is when you're in a staff meeting, you're not just concerned about the agenda. Who's doing what? Who's saying what? You're watching. Who never speaks up? Who, after they speak, makes everyone afraid? Hmm. Like whose anxiety has spilled into others? So that's number one, because what Friedman and, and his coach, Murray Bowen, would say is that people listen to content, but we react emotionally to process.
0: Oh, okay. So
1: process is this thing under the surface that we're all reacting to that we're not naming. Um, but if you can, uh, any leader can walk into any room and start noticing process right away. And once you do it, it'll freak you out because you'll you'll start seeing things that you've always known, but you've never known how to put a word. Can you through.
0: give me a couple of other examples of process? I get the idea of the person who never speaks up or the person who makes everyone else feel anxious. What are some other, because uh, I think that's a really good point. How do you observe process?
1: Yeah, you observe the way people relate to each other. And the way you are affected by other people Hmm. and the way you affect other people. So that person makes me feel
0: defensive or, Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So several years ago, I'm a young lead pastor. We're a young church plant of 200 and I don't really know what I'm doing. And we hire this brand new staff member. She's barely been a believer, not very long, concrete minded person, very earnest. And I'm the kind of person that's an external processor. I kind of need to talk a lot to figure out what I think. Yeah. I'm also the kind of person that that sounds like I have strong opinions when I really don't. I, I need to generate a lot of ideas, and most of them are bad. That's there, you know, a classic entrepreneurial leader. I'm I'm spitballing in a staff meeting. There's like four of us in the staff, and she takes out a notebook and she starts earnestly writing down everything I'm saying, like I'm the pope, like like it's all an edict. And I remember stopping, what are you doing? And she's writing it down like, this is what she has to do this week. Whereas my veteran staff, they know that in a few weeks, I'll forget that I even talked about it. That's process. Like, I am concerned as a leader, I don't want to exacerbate a good staff member by the shadow side of my entrepreneurialism infecting her. Because I'm the other thing I'm aware of is I'm the lead pastor. I have a lot of authority, whether I feel it or not, whether I... I know like Andy Stanley famously says that uh, the leader's words have 50 pound weights attached to them. Mm -hmm. That was the first time I noticed that. So process is paying attention to my impact on others and their impact on me. And then non-anxious presence, which is a technical term out of family systems theory. Anyone could Google it and get a long way. Non-anxious presence is the ability to stop someone else's anxiety infecting me and to stop my anxiety infecting someone else in any given moment. So I love how you said it. It's not about being Yoda or, or some kind of Zen mm-hmm. person. It I can walk into a room anxious, but be a non-anxious presence by being aware of my anxiety. One of my great tools is naming it. Sometimes I name it to God before I walk in. Sometimes I'll name it to the room. I'll just say, yeah, boy, I'm carrying this thing right now. I just want to name it to get some power over it. But a true non anxious presence is the ability and the skill to not let others' anxiety infect you. Like if you have a phantom mob coming your way or people are ganging up, um, or you get that critical email, you know, and, and you're stirred up, it's the ability to manage it rather than then infect others with it.
0: Mm. Okay. You talked uh, a little bit about. Um, understanding your emotions and how you're feeling and the sources of your anxiety. It sounds like a lot of this is self-awareness and then some self-regulation, which is not a surprise (laughs) because that's the heart of emotional intelligence. Uh, But you mentioned like naming feelings. So I was terrible at that. And I'm still learning how to name feelings. And it can get really difficult. I mean, a daily discipline, even this morning, I was trying to figure out You know, as, as we go through this whole COVID thing, I mentioned to you before we started recording, this is the week where after two and a half weeks of siege mode, I'm starting to feel it. It's like I've slowed down a little bit and my body's going, Oh, there's a lot going on. And like it took me about an hour to untangle. It's like, Oh, I'm feeling a loss of control. Now I taught on loss of control, but to actually have that show up in my own life is, is very different. How do you, how do you start to disentangle? leadership anxiety and how is like naming emotions and what are some other processes that are really good to help you do that? Yeah,
1: it's such a great question. I, th- I think it's such a vital question for every leader to, to address. I believe the lowest hanging fruit way to know you're anxious is to get hyper aware of your physiology. Um, hmm. Anxiety typically shows up in a spinning mind, a racing heart or a tightening body. And it's different for each of us. So for me, it's a spinning mind. I, I know I'm anxious when I'm ruminating over and over again about the same thing. Uh, for others, tight, uh, racing heart, it feels like they've had 10 cups of caffeine. And then for others, it's a tightening, clenching, either their gut, they feel nauseous, or their shoulders, they always need a back rub. Hmm. Um, let, let me throw it to you, Kerry. Would you yeah. be able
0: to name where it starts for you? I would say racing heart.
1: Racing um, heart.
0: Isn't, isn't that interesting? Because I hadn't, I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> um, thanks for the free therapy, by the way. And thanks everyone for listening in. Um, no, I would say because I don't, like I sleep almost every night. It has to be almost a nuclear yeah. meltdown to interrupt my sleep. And the COVID crisis, particularly because, you know, I had yeah. six to 12 months of speaking wiped out. It's like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? I was up at four 30 in the morning, but like I slept every night and it was 10 minutes getting to sleep as opposed to yeah. two, which would be my typical pattern. But it did show up as uh heightened awareness, like almost like a, okay, it's time to do this. And it's time to do that. Uh hyper productivity, not manic productivity, but, but hyper productivity, um, reassuring everyone else, just like, okay, yeah. you, you just, it's like an adrenaline shot. It was like every day I woke up at four thirty and someone injected me with some adrenaline and the, I, I just went, what was the body. third? You mentioned uh, racing mind. Oh, tightened. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit. I, yeah. I would feel that I'm very sensitive to my body and I would feel in my shoulders and my neck that it was getting tight, not to the point where I needed to go get a massage, but that's where it would show up in me. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I would say that is step one. It's for people, you know, the the whole first take your own pulse idea. This some of this work only takes thirty seconds. That's that's what I love about it.
0: Is they yeah, but I wouldn't have called it anxiety because I didn't feel anxious. But of course, that's probably exactly what it is, right? Well, Carrie, gosh, I mean, I I want to. I'm so
1: careful not exposing people. I think what you could do if you're interested in a, a brave experiment is to ask your team when they know you're anxious in oh, times right. that you don't know and uh, that would be a second tool is is that hyper productivity is almost certainly an anxious response on mm. some level yeah. but it's where it gets complicated is it's also the shadow side of your incredible gift you have generated all of these phenomenal resources for church leaders the king you know the kingdom's benefit so every gift has a shadow side mm-hmm. i i just believe that chronic anxiety is a spiritual force that for most leaders, we don't know we're anxious until we're really, really anxious. And what I'm interested in doing with the coaching I do is helping people go from being deep down the grip of anxiety to learning how to notice it in the moment to now being able to preempt it as they're walking into a situation. So in my chaplaincy work, it it was that year when I first started to understand, I believe the lie, I need to have the answer but I didn't know that until well after the event. Now, you know, 20 something years later, I can walk into an elders meeting. Our elders meet once a month. There are phenomenal men and women, Mm. but they're volunteers and they're not in it every day like I am. And so they might ask a question that they have every right to ask that I don't have the answer to. If I believe the lie that I need to have the answer, And I'm not dealing with it. I'm going to be defensive when they ask. I'm going to tell them why that isn't in their purview and they shouldn't be asked. I'll I'll have all these weird responses. But because I'm very aware that some of my anxiety is driven by needing to always know, I can actually die to it before I get to the elders meeting. That's just a way of preempting. So I really think the first place to start for most leaders is your body. Just if you can start to notice when you're in the grip of anxiety, what does it feel like? The next step is, are you able to name what you think you need that you don't really need. like, mm. And then after that, the, the braver work is asking people who love you when they know when you don't know. And I'll, I'll say this, Kerry, you know, My youngest is 13 now. My oldest is 19. You haven't lived until your nine-year-old daughter is telling you that she knows you're anxious when you don't know you're anxious. Oh, wow. But that's because we all catch each other's anxiety. That's because we all notice and react to process, even though we don't talk about it much. So uh, those would be just a few steps I think we could take.
0: No, that's really good. I want to ask you, uh, so one of the words that hasn't come up a lot in our interview so far, but Mm -hmm. I kind of wonder if we're dancing around the edge of is fear. Um, To what extent, because, you know, if you don't know the answer, that can be a fear thing. If you didn't do a good job preaching, that could be a fear thing. If you're like, well, I can't do nothing. I gotta do something that can be a fear thing. Is this related in any way to fear?
1: Oh, I love that I love that question. Yeah. You 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 are you know, you are obviously well versed in the things you're asking about, right? Like the most commanded passage in scripture is fear not. Yeah. so, so I, I think when John says perfect love casts out all fear. I think the way it works is we can either be in the grip of chronic anxiety or we can be in the grip of the unconditional love of God. Hmm. But it's very difficult to be in the grip of both. One of them typically displaces the other one. I think that's because theologically, chronic anxiety is actually what shows up when we're depending on anything other than God for our well-being. Ah. And so I think anxiety becomes a real gift because it can now be the the early trigger that we need to encounter the gospel in the moment. Like most church leaders I know we're much better at sharing the gospel than we are experiencing it for ourselves. It's one of the great challenges of church yes. leadership. Yes. Um, but since I've been doing this work, I've experienced the profound unconditional love of God so, so much deeper as I notice my chronic anxiety. Um, one, one of the signs that you know you're anxious is when you believe the lie, it's all on me. You start mm-hmm. to forget that God's at work, that God's sovereign, and you start operating as if you must do something. One exercise I do is is I, I just make a, a little two-beat reminder. When I start to notice that I'm feeling it all on my shoulders, and, and particularly for leaders who are highly responsible people, we're, we're particularly prone to this. So I must do, I must do, you know, that thing. Just that simple reminder, wait a minute, God is with me. I'm not alone. Hmm. But not only that, God is actually already at work into the ambiguity into which I'm walking, like that thing that I'm walking into that I don't know what to do. God's already there I'm actually this was profound for me as a chaplain there'd be there'd be times I'd be doing these overnight shifts and I'd go to five to seven deaths in a day, like like two a m the beeper goes off, and it's the fifth death and And I I just remember being, I'm not proud of this, but this is a very human response. I'd be angry at the person for dying, for inconveniencing me.
0: Oh yeah, no pastor has ever felt that before.
1: Right, right. Keep going. And so I have from the the overnight room to washing my face, brushing my teeth, trying to get some semblance of being awake at 2 a.m. I've got from there to when I walk into the widower, maybe his wife just died. And this poor man, the worst thing that's ever happened in his life has just happened. And I'm mad at him. I, that's an anxious response that that anger, that's my that's my emotions and my body pushing away the fear of can I really be in the presence of grief again? Um, but what was phenomenally profound for me was remembering, wait a minute, God's already in the room with that widower. God's already doing work. God doesn't need me to do anything. What God is inviting me to do is to join God in that work, pay attention to what's going on, where's God at work? and then act out of that. And that's what I would encourage in COVID. I, I just think we are in a historically unprecedented time. Not only have none of us ever been in this, but certainly in modern history, this is unprecedented.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: This is a time for leaders to be even more kind to ourselves. Like what if, Kerry, what if, what if your listeners were at least as kind to ourselves as God is to us? That, wouldn't that be a radical yeah, idea? That, that
0: would that, be amazing.
1: Yeah because when we when we are harsher on ourselves than God is we are actually putting ourselves above God we so this is a time to, for extra kindness but this is also a time to be to just to name what we're, what's going on and what we're feeling and what we will find is we have a deeper capacity to walk into ambiguity we'll have a deeper capacity to walk into an anxious group of people who have every reason to be anxious I told to a member of my congregation a week and a half ago, he laid off a thousand people in a day. He is absolutely distraught. And my ability to take care of him is wholly dependent on my ability to not shrink his pain down to a manageable size, but to enter into his pain, to name it, to pray with him, to be present to what God's doing. that That's the vision I'm casting.
0: So, um... Yeah, because that takes us into sort of where I was thinking the next question is, which is leadership is action. And leadership really has a bias toward action. If you look at the leaders we mostly admire, the leaders who accomplish something with their lives, they tend to be active rather than passive. So how do you balance that, like, that thing of not needing too much of you in the moment because it's an anxious response to just sitting on the couch eating doritos binging on netflix and while the world goes you know into flames like because i think that is the fear in a lot of leaders minds it's like so you're telling me not to act but if i don't act i'm not exercising leadership so how do you how do you straddle that
1: that's a great question i'm so aware on a podcast like this that getting into the nuance is a challenge. And, and so all I'm calling for, cause I'm also an action oriented leader. Yeah, when I'm under stress, too. I want to do Big something. Time. And that is, and, and I want to capture, I know we said it before, that is a gift. Mm. It's a gift that God's given you. I'm not saying not to act. I'm simply saying pause before acting and get aware of what actions are you doing for others? And what actions are you doing to manage your own anxiety? And if you're not aware when you're anxious, that's when it gets dangerous. Is is when you're not aware that you're anxious? Like, the, Carrie, it must be the same. The, my email intake has probably increased fivefold uh, from church resource organizations um, trying to help me. These are all great organizations. <laughs> They're all great organizations. Yeah. But if I am not careful, I'll exhaust myself on the fallacy of more information.
0: Yeah. Got a webinar every day, every hour for the next year.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You're totally right.
1: And not only that, but some of those organizations, and again, I'm I'm not judging, but some of them are simply trying to figure out how to keep their business alive, which is a completely legitimate concern, but they're not actually trying to help necessarily. They're trying to do more yeah. And that that could be an anxious response. So I'm, I'm not saying let's all just kind of wait and hope for the best. I'm just saying in ambiguous times when no one quite knows what to do, um, digging a deeper well of your own self-awareness is going to get you more productive than just doing, doing, doing. Uh, I think that would be my...
0: What role... Um- I guess, what are the disciplines that help you find that time for self-reflection, maybe silence? Like, are there some rhythms that can really help leaders in a time of crisis to not lose their footing and to drill down on these issues? Any advice Uh, there?
1: Yeah, I, I do think whatever spiritual practices connect you to Jesus, do more of those. And it is different for each of us. For some people, it's silence. For some, it's solitude. For me, um, I I encourage leaders in my coaching to do a life-giving list. Um, You can actually download it off my website. It's just a free spreadsheet. And it's a simple list of the people and the geographical locations, which currently you can't do with COVID, but the people and the activities that make you feel like a kid in God's kingdom. Uh, So I have a life-giving list. There's like 70 something things on the list. And some of these things are free. Uh, and some of them cost a lot of money, um, and so geographical places, people, activities, and, and I was noticing in my own life, Carrie, I was relating to God more as God's employee than God's child. Mm. I was I was clocking in for the boss, a boss that I love, a boss that's very yeah, good to me, good but, boss. But still, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. That was my mantra, and I realized, wait a minute. Um, Jesus said that the Father gives good gifts to His kids. And uh, so I I would ask your listeners this, when you hear the gifts of God, that phrase, when you hear God gives gifts, if your first thought is the spiritual gifts that he gave me to pass on to others, Hmm. I would encourage you in this time to make a list of the gifts that God has only given to you and no one else. Wow. So I'll give you a few on my list. My wife, Lisa. God has given me my wife in a way that no one else gets to get. And I get to finish this podcast right when we're done and I get to go up and hug my wife. And that's a unique gift from God. That is a gift to me and it's unbelievable. Um, I play acoustic guitar. And so one of the things I do, Kerry, is is I'll displace my anxiety and the pressure with five minutes of James Taylor or You mm. or 2 or whatever. I just enjoy playing it. I love to sing and I'm not a good singer. Mm. Uh, So I don't, I never sing in public, but I just sit, the last time I did it was yesterday. I got out the guitar, I sang a James Taylor song because I, I think when we practice the gifts that God has given us as God's child, we are free from earnestness and we get to play. And I think the fallacy in our leaders is we think there's too much important work to do. But you referenced Ed Friedman. He is actually extremely playful. He actually models playfulness. And I would just say to our, our leaders, it's phenomenal what five minutes to 20 minutes of playfulness can get you. That'll that'll buy you three to seven hours of productivity. Oh, but, yeah. But one of the ways you know you're anxious is when you're applying try harder to anything that's not working.
0: It's, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, if
1: something's not working and your solution is more of the same and try harder, so maybe... Maybe you do have that uh, employee that's not very productive and you really do believe that one more meeting is going to turn the corner. More, one more piece of insight from you. The, the life-giving list is just a dead simple way to um, displace your pressure with, a, with the presence of God.
0: That is, uh, we will link to that in the show notes. And uh, I'm probably going to download that. That sounds really, really good. You know, on the other side of burnout, and I want to drill down on burnout in just a moment, I realized can I was hobby. Can I jump
1: in, Kerry? What, what would be on your list? I think, because we all have different things on our mm-hmm. list. What, what would be a couple of things on so your list? So a few
0: things I really enjoy. I actually really enjoy barbecue. I'm going to do some tonight. That was a hobby. You can't pay me money for it. Everyone thinks I'm sponsored by Big Green Egg. I'm not, and that would ruin it. So I love doing that. I love bring, bringing uh, pleasure to other people. Uh, I really enjoy cycling. Went for a bike ride an hour before we jumped on this call. And that's just, I don't ride in groups usually. It's just me. But, I, you know, and it's its stuff that helps me feel God's pleasure. I've taken up yeah. running. Um, what else? I mean, my wife for sure. Hanging out with my kids, long dinners with yep. friends. But that whole idea where I realized so much of leadership is giving and there are rewards in it. It's deeply rewarding. Yes. But, yes. but a friendship and life has to be mutual. And that is where you receive and you give. And often in leadership, I found myself in a deficit in that area where you're giving, 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 but not receiving. And so I've really yeah. tried to focus on that. Is that the ballpark?
1: Oh, you're talking fantastic. About, yeah. yeah. And, and it, it is interesting how specific it gets Like for my wife because um, because spouses can do this for each other. You can each, and and your kids can make a life-giving list too. So my wife, for example, um, popping old school popcorn on the stove is mm. on her life-giving list. Um, our executive pastor, Tom, every Saturday morning, he puts on a vinyl album and he posts the vinyl on Facebook. Here's what makes it magic. I I, I used to be embarrassed to teach this because it feels so basic, but I just find so many leaders don't do it. God has given all of us these unique pleasures. And every time I do something on the life-giving list, I just thank God for it. So if I were barbecuing like you, Kerry, there'd be a moment where I would just in prayer say, God, thank you that you have wired me to love barbecue and love serving people with it. That's a gift from you and I, I receive it yeah um and this it's crazy there's something because i really don't think you can be invaded by the love of god and invaded by chronic anxiety at the same time so i tend to use my life-giving list to displace my anxiety and my leadership pressure and the spiritual disciplines are on the list so for me reading theology Mm -hmm. uh reading the old testament slowly is on my list Uh, uh for me solitude more than silence i it's crazy. I I started going to a Benedictine monastery several years ago. They do silent retreats, yeah, and they chant in Gregorian chant mm-hmm. seven times a day. And I I don't know how, but it's one of them things on my list. It's the most peace flooding experience to go chant with these cloistered nuns. So really? the things that will show up on your list are crazy. You just you keep looking for them. You keep adding, and and I think it helps the leader feel more alive. So I just. I really want to hammer on. It's not about sitting back. It's actually about deepening our capacity for ambiguity, which is the times we're in. It grows our ability to manage ambiguous situations when we are less anxious.
0: Good to know. I will be downloading that list for sure and sharing it with friends, Steve. Okay, Uh, I know by the time this airs, there are some leaders who are like, okay, I'm anxious, I'm stressed. I wonder if I'm burning out. And I want to get this right. You make the argument that burnout has less to do with workload and more to do with yeah. internal and external anxiety. Can you explain that a little bit? Because this you're right. The stereotype on on burnout is I just work too many hours. I've got too much responsibility. But you think it's anxiety related.
1: Yes. I do. Right. Uh I, like I Yes, I think the too many hours fallacy. People are working too many hours because they are living out of their anxiety. They believe that they need something or the world needs something that they don't really need. and The world doesn't really need. So, you know, most leaders believe that the world needs eighty hours of our time when sixty-five will do. Hmm. The, the other, the other fallacy, I'd say, Carrie, Almost every leader I know and respect loves having a lot of work to do. We, yeah, we. It's like a boat. I don't
0: thrive we, at thirty-eight point five hours a week. I. Don't. That's
1: right. You, I, I know in my life, I get lazy. There's a certain point yeah. that I actually get uh, lazy and dysfunctional. I, like a boat, I kind of need to be on the 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 plane, the, the Bertrand. But, you know, a boat is kind of yeah, yeah. in the water, but then it gets on the water.
0: Oh, yeah. A, a boat. Yeah, on plane. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I am my using boat. The right. in captivity right now in quarantine <laughs> oh, with everyone else. So... You talk about a life-giving list, a, a day out. Oh, on a boat. life-giving list, boating, yeah, totally, a hundred percent for me. Again, the guy who had no hobbies finally has some.
1: So there you go. I'm with you. Yeah. So no, most leaders I know they love to have a lot to do. we actually yeah. get motivated by being productive. Uh, but it's usually um, that that one person that's always critical. It's it's usually. Um, like for me, I came close to burnout at our church. We had a, a slate of young men dying in our church year after year. Mm. And they were all dear friends of mine. One was the chairman of our elders. One was my volunteer worship leader. They were they were these men that were very precious to me as friends and key leaders in the church. The burnout there had more to do with grief than workload. Oh, it had wow. had more to do with the pressure of burying a friend on Sunday and then leading a church through grief when I was grieving. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's usually got more to do with unaddressed expectations about ourselves. Maybe your church isn't growing, your company isn't growing the way it was before. And you don't know if you have what it takes. Maybe it's because you believe imposter syndrome that you actually have finally been exposed. That's usually what makes a leader burnout or, or worse, you know, have an affair or, or some of those really toxic responses that unfortunately we see too many leaders doing.
0: Well, that resonates with me the way you describe it too, because I can just think of dozens of people I know who burned out. You remove the workload, but the burnout continues, right? You take them out of their job and it's not like, oh, I feel so much better on Monday. It's like, sometimes it gets worse, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go back to grief. So I picked these amateur points up along the way, but I've heard depression is loss grief is loss yeah um, there's a lot to grieve if you yeah. think about how much people have lost whether that is control income um, the collective loss of life the yeah. even if you don't have anybody in your immediate circle i mean there's just a national loss there's a yeah. you know regional loss there's there's a loss of freedom, the loss of mobility, the uh, loss of dreams, the loss of hopes. I mean, church planters and business leaders oh, who yeah. are hoping to launch brand new locations uh, lost it. How does grief show up? How does, how does that kind of mourning of loss show up in leaders' lives? You were, and, and I, I want to go back to something you said before we hit record because you and I were sort of comparing notes. We're on week four of the crisis as we're recording this in early April. Uh, So this will air a few weeks later. But I'm like, yeah, I'm really feeling it this week. And you said your mood is all over the place, right? Right. Like when you look at how that kind of came out. So can you help us to pay attention to the signs that would tell us we're grieving or we're experiencing loss or depression?
1: Yeah, grief Grief is the bane of most leaders because we are so control-oriented. That um, the, the antidote to grief is radical acceptance. And it, it's a different skill set than most leaders have. Hmm. Most leaders are leading toward a preferred future, right? We have a vision of how things can be. But if you just picture grief like it, grief is a thing. It has its own agenda. It didn't ask you if you're okay with it. Um, so the the metaphor I use for grief is it's a tornado. It, it hmm. shows up. Sometimes you get an early warning siren, sometimes it hits, it 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 comes unannounced, it outstays its welcome, it does its damage, and then it moves on. And I think the challenge with grief is that process can happen anywhere from multiple times a day. Uh, if you are actually literally grieving the loss, the the death of someone you love, mm. that process happens thousands and thousands of times over 10, 15 years, you, know, you that, that's the problem with grief is uh, when when we had these these young men dying in our church, I remember one of the young widows, a dear, dear friend of our families, uh, I remember her saying to us, she's like, year five was the worst. I thought like year three was the worst. And, and that's the nature of grief. It just, it sets its own agenda. And so I think the antidote for a leader is radical acceptance because... Mm. When when we're in an ambiguous environment that we have no control over, just our our need to shrink it down to something we can manage and lead through. And it usually, carry it really does come from a good place. We have a good heart. We want to be helpful to people. We want to help our team. Like what's it like when you're the leader of a team and you're the one grieving the most? Yeah. That's so disorienting because you don't want to infect your team. You know, Colin Powell talks about how optimism is a force multiplier. But but for your listeners who are struggling to get up, like I think you were really perceptive when you said we're we're about to hit like the ground zero for a lot of leaders because they've been running so hard. Yeah, this last week for me, what I was sharing with you before we hit record, I'm a I'm by just nature and disposition highly optimistic. Very very little gets me down, and last week I'd wake up in a like a foreign experience that I'd have to describe as like a depression. Um, I started to question my calling at the church. Um, And then one day I woke up just incredibly, almost paranoid. It was like an irritability that bordered on a paranoia about people. These for me are incredibly foreign experiences. Right. Uh, I just am not wired that way. And so I I would just say, because I've done this work a lot, I moved into radical self-acceptance, which is naming it. And then I did deeper tools. I was probably less productive last week and more forgiving of myself than I normally would be. Hmm. Um, and and then I decided, okay, uh, next week uh, we're in trouble if it's that way this week again. And this week I'm feeling well and I don't know why. That's the nature of grief. It, it I've had is- a
0: good friend who's a CEO who texted me uh, on the weekend and just said... I've never had this before. He's in his early forties, and he's just like I—I I feel lost. I feel yeah. I'm almost depressed. What is yeah. this? And so, you know, we had a good conversation about it, and away we go. But the, this will—the—the the loss that we're experiencing, the anxiety, the grief—that's just going to show up in really weird ways, isn't it? Yeah, and right. I think I had a little bit of that earlier today, where. I was really kind of in a foul mood for no reason. I had a good night's sleep. The sun was shining. I had a good day of work ahead of me. And I'm like, I just wanted to criticize my wife. And she did absolutely nothing to deserve it. And I'm like, you know, thinking about it, praying about it. And I'm like, oh, I just need something to control right now. And so I'm going to try to control someone with my words and criticism. And once I named it, it took me a while to get to the bottom of it. I'm like, that's what that is. And then it was gone,
1: right? But... Interesting. It's, it's, it's a great. It's a great example. Kurt Thompson says we name things to tame things, mm. and I, and I think, I think that the vision in scripture about confessant confession. Yes, the, the fact that you have to say it to somebody in order to get for it to lose its grip on you. Oh, that's
0: a good point. You know, you're right. you are know, right. That was a form of confession. Loud. I went into yeah. her office and I just said, "Hey, you don't even know this is going on, but here is what was going on, and here is the point of it." And you know, and then the power of it loosened in your yeah, life. Yeah, right? it just That's releases. You bring it. the darkness into light and yeah. you know, the darkness loses. So so I hear that. Any other words for leaders who may be suspecting that they're burning out right now? Oh man. Bur- you know, Carrie
1: burnout is is one of the scariest situations for a leader. I think it's terrifying. So I, I just I think I, I know this is your message over and over again. Don't do it alone. You know, there are there are people in your life who love you um, and and go be vulnerable with those people. Uh, on my life-giving list is some dear closest friends of mine um, that are in ministry. And sometimes I'll call them and I'll just blurt it all out. Hey, I'm really struggling and I'm calling you because I really need help. And other times I'm all kind of casual like, like, uh, hey, how are you doing? You know, but I mm. I, I need them. So I think get help, name it. Um, but I think the other message I'd want to say, Kerry, is burnout is not inevitable. Yes. Uh, and if you do burnout, there is so much good news on the other side. Um, I do think one of the things we, I know we've covered a lot of ground today, but one of the most powerful ways to really encounter the grace of God is is dying to something. and And I do think burnout you know it starts to send us a message of our ambitions and our productivity and our, even our income like it's all going to go away and it's all because of you and those messages of doom that to me is is why chronic anxiety is a spiritual dark force it always sends you a message of doom but the gospel always has a message of hope and i don't mean it in a simplistic way and i don't mean it in a pithy way i re- i mean the gospel's message of hope. I mean, you and I are recording this right before Resurrection Sunday. Yeah. There is always a resurrection on the side of on the other side of death. And, and we can follow Jesus through that once we die to what we think we need. Uh, and so for some leaders, burnout might actually be the best thing that happens to you. I personally hope you don't ever go through it because it is Yeah, I would, would vote for that. But if you do go through it or if you are going through it, there is... Gospel on the other side of it. There is hope. Yeah, I side. never
0: would have believed it, but there is much greater life on the other side of burnout than there was on the front side of burnout, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, Steve, one or two quick little questions for you left. Um, I want to speak to the optimists in the crowd. You say you're an optimist. I'm an optimist. Yeah. But it's yeah. interesting on social media, just with some friends and some people I follow online there's almost, you know, at first it's like this coronavirus is all overblown and no, this is good. And, you know, faith over fear. And listen, I believe in faith over fear too. But there are some people who almost, it seems their way of coping is to minimize what's going on and to say, you've got this, it's going to be okay. They're going to motivate themselves through a crisis. What is the upside of that? And is there a downside to that?
1: Okay, I'm having trouble hearing any upside to what you just said.
0: (laughs) Um, I am too, but I wanted to give it the benefit of the doubt. I'm like, are you trying to talk this through in public? Are you trying to motivate yourself? Like there is, there's a. I'm a Stockdale paradox guy. Jim Collins writes about you know, you never lose hope, but you confront the brutal facts. That's That's also my Enneagram eight. I'm like, okay, guys, things are bad. The house is on fire. Everyone out. Let's figure out how we can put out the fire. So when I'm watching these hyper optimists sort of go on online, almost minimizing what's going on, I'm like, I don't know how that's helping anybody.
1: No, I I think they're just actually. I'll I'll be. You know, it's always risky to make blanket statements, right? And generalizations. All right, sure. Generally speaking, they're just operating out of their own unaddressed anxiety. They're unaware that that's what they're doing uh, because they need to. What what, when people do that kind of pithy, you know? Yeah, it's almost pithy. You're right. Right, that, that bumper sticker, if it fits on a bumper sticker, I'm going to give it to you, that idea. There's, what they're not aware of is they're simply incapable of stepping into someone's pain. But I, I think there's a hmm. whole side of leadership that's incarnational presence. And, and that is entering right in the middle of it with people. And the only way you can do that is when you're aware of yourself. Otherwise, you're going to do damage. And it is crazy how oftentimes, like I'm a, I am love scripture. I find so much life in scripture. Yeah. But the amount of times a leader will quote, quote a scripture to somebody and they think it's helpful. And if you're a leader with authority over someone, that person will even thank you for it. They'll even say, oh, thank you, pastor. That really helped. No, it didn't. You were, you were simply shrinking their pain so you could manage and feel better. What's it like to, to be aware of that, to stop, and to simply say to somebody, that must be really hard. Like when I talked to my friend who'd laid off all those people, I cannot begin to imagine what he's carrying. And that's all I could offer him. I I, I said, I don't know what it must be like to be you. I've never had to do that. That must be the worst possible thing. You must feel so terrible. He's like, I, and he said, I remember he said, he said, I'm the cause of all these people. I'm, I'm like, call him Bob. Bob, you're not the cause. The virus is what caused this. But I'm not saying, you know what? Look on the bright side. Maybe they'll get a better job. <laughs> like that's that, that pivot. You can still bring gospel hope into someone's life without shrinking down their pain. And I think that's the difference. And particularly for your listeners who may not be aware, again, Carrie, they can ask people who love them and their loved ones, if they're, if they're safe people, their loved ones will tell them, oh yeah, you're not someone I go to when I'm hurting because I know. You know, I know you're going to- You're a minimizer. Me, you're yeah, an optimist. You're going to give me some advice. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It's like the book of Job, right? The best thing his friends did was sit there for a few days and say nothing. And then it kind of went all downhill from there. But when I read Job, I kind of agree with his friends. And I'm like, oh yeah, but God didn't. So yeah, it's it's a fascinating book. You and I were chatting
1: about Henry Cloud. I was recently on a Compassion International trip with Henry. Uh, just an oh, incredible- Oh yeah, I heard about that trip. Oh, incredible privilege. And he made this throwaway comment. I hope he doesn't mind me sharing it on your podcast. I don't think he does. He's like, oh, he's yeah, when you read through soon, the...
0: He'll, he'll he'll correct it if you... I'm sure it's great. Oh, what did you did he need say? to
1: ask him about it. He said, hey, if you read through the book of Job, it's like walking through a Christian bookstore.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Simple answers for complicated thought, right, problems. Right.
1: Or categorized. Yeah. Wrong theology or wrong behavior uh, is why you're in this problem. Yeah. I
0: think he'd stand by that. That's absolutely... Wow, that's so true, Steve. This has been life giving, and uh, we will link to the life giving list. I'm very, very anxious to see what's on that, and uh, and I think that's really good advice. Anything else in closing that you want to share with leaders, Steve? This is this has been so rich.
1: Oh, this has been just an honor, Carrie, to come on. And uh, you know, I just think you're you're one of the you've been doing this a long time, and and you're one of the people that it's worth hearing from with with what's going on. So thank you for yeah. thanks for
0: hosting me. Guess I'm working out my anxiety. That's one of the things that actually really resonated with me. But you know, it's so funny because I was recording a video and today wasn't one of my best days. And I'm like on take three. And then I just had this moment where I thought, because I'm running this IGTV series on Instagram that's got, you know, just tens of thousands of views now. And I'm like, who am I doing this for? And I said, I think I'm producing content just to help content. And I shut my camera off. And I just walked away and I said, today's not going to be a video day. It's fine. I don't know if oh. it's health or what, but I, you
1: know. I love, that makes me so happy. I, I, I've often coached leaders, you know, we think about Sabbath as rest. Mm. And particularly for leaders that are productive, I, I coach them to consider Sabbath through the lens of control. There's a whole theology in the Bible about how oh. Sabbath is about control, not rest. So.
0: Well, I think there's a whole other podcast episode in that, Steve. We'll have <laughs> yeah. to have you back. Yeah. That is my issue for sure. Uh, this is great. So people are going to want to uh, connect with you. The book, your latest book is called Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. Good for peacetime, excellent for crisis time as well. You've helped a lot of leaders manage their anxiety and, and what they're feeling. Uh, where can people find you online?
1: Yeah, my last name's Cuss. Might as well have fun with it. So my website is stevecusswords.com. That's and great. You- You can get some free tools there. Um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm currently most active with this work on Twitter. uh, And I'm trying to do better on the other. My other platforms are more personal. People can follow me anywhere they like. But that's how you can. And then I have my own podcast too, Kerry. I bring guests on and I make them talk about anxiety. It's a good time. (laughs) And that's just called Managing Leadership Anxiety Podcast. So, People can scroll through the guests. Um, You know, Max Licato has been on there. Kay Warren has been on there. I think Christine Kane's episode will probably be released by the time people get this.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Well, you've helped a lot of leaders today. And Steve, thank you so, so much. I know this won't be the last time we talk. Oh, great, Kira. It's been a real privilege. Thank you. Well, that was uh, personally therapeutic. I kind of like getting, you know, people like Steve and Ian Morgan Cron, who's coming back on the podcast, because I feel like I get free therapy. I don't know. Maybe you did too. Uh, there is a lot more in the show notes at com slash episode 337. We even have transcripts if you want to go a little bit deeper, some quotes you can share on social media, plus some insights from the episode. Uh, you'll get everything, plus all the links we mention as well over at com slash episode 337. And while tens of thousands of people will hear this episode, thousands, sometimes about 10,000 people will head on over to the show notes. If you've never done that, you don't know what you're missing. Got a lot of good stuff for you. Coming up on the show, we have got Tim Keller, which I'm so excited for. Sean Morgan is coming up. Annie F. Downs, Joel Manby, Ian Morgan Cron, Scott Harrison from Charity Water, Paula Ferris from ABC News, Near AL, who really rocked Silicon Valley a few years ago with some of his books, Joe Saxton, John Eldridge. Patrick Lencioni, and so many more subscribers. You get it all for free. So if you haven't yet subscribed, hit the subscribe button. And if you would leave a rating and review, I'd be so grateful. We've got what I'm thinking about coming up in just a few minutes. But in the meantime, let me tee up the next episode. Sean Morgan is someone who's become a really good friend. And we had a fascinating conversation about what he learned in the military about navigating crisis and uncertainty. So have a listen. Because of the military, here's where the military comes in. So I think there's this opportunity mindset, um, and we probably don't talk about it enough in the ministry space, but the aspect of warfare. And the truth is, if if you're in charge, if you're placed in charge, you're stewarding that, right? But if you're in those positions, you have this, okay, opportunity is a great word to use. But from a warrior's perspective, you almost have a responsibility. Like if you put mm. somebody in charge and you train and develop them and you you give them a weapon and it's wartime, they don't just have an opportunity to go do something. They almost have a responsibility. That's next episode coming up May 5th. We're back to our regular schedule, but not our regular program. We took a lot of the spring interviews and uh, moved them into the summer. And we're just bringing you crisis stuff right now because that's what we're all in. So... Uh, I am thinking about what happens when we try to go back to normal, whatever that looks like. And um, hey, this is brought to you by the Ascent Leader cohorts. If you are thinking of stepping out of your senior leadership role in the next five to ten years or sooner, uh, apply for a cohort at the AscentLeader.org. And what happens when your 2020 budget just blew up? You pick up their complimentary book and support hotline at Generis by going to generis.com forward slash carry 2020. So here's what I'm thinking about. Uh, we are all talking about what reopening America, the world looks like, Canada. And uh, what is that like? And I've I've got something I'm kind of worried about, which is simply this. <laughs> So many leaders and particularly church leaders are poised to re-embrace a model of ministry or a model of business designed to reach a world that no one exists. Because you want to get back to normal. It's like, oh, finally, we're back in our building. We're back in the office. Things can go back to normal. But if you have that mindset, so many leaders will step right back into the past the moment they step back in their building. And I want to share five things I think that could happen if you don't have the right mindset when you go back to normal or the new normal first of all here's what's likely to happen you have been innovating so so much over the last 2 months your innovation curve will come to an abrupt stop you'll be like ha ah, i can breathe a sigh of relief we're all back together again this is awesome i know it's a little bit different we got some social distancing or whatever but ha ah, you know what you should do you should make a list of all the innovations you've done in the last two months and then just don't stop that. Crisis is a cradle for innovation and the future belongs to innovators. Second thing you'll do is you'll stop pivoting. I'm going to have some more information and some resources on pivoting in the next month. I think this is going to be an essential skill over the next two or three years because I'm not sure it's going to be a very predictable future. Uh, You pivoted like crazy during the crisis. You're tired of it, but you may want to hang on to that skill because the future almost always belongs to agile leaders who adopt and change. Number three, you will see online as an add-on, not as the future. So overnight, everybody went online, right? Restaurants went online if they weren't there before. Grocery stores did. Churches did. Businesses did. But what'll happen when you try to go back to normal, even though normal doesn't exist, is you'll begin to see online as an add-on, not as the future. Listen, church leaders, everyone you want to reach is online. Uh, Business leaders, everyone you want to connect with is online. And if you see online as an add-on, not the future, you'll miss most of the very people you're trying to reach. And the other thing you'll do is you'll tack online onto someone's job description. Hey, if you have time, can you take care of our website or online customer service or whatever? Listen, you cannot have a massive impact online when you spend 1% of your staffing resources on it. So you're going to need to staff your online presence as though you depended on it, because guess what? You do. Fourth thing, if you're trying to get back to normal, is you'll get crushed by unpredictability. I really believe the future is going to be somewhat more uncertain than any of us want it to be. But if you keep your agility and are able and willing to pivot, you will thrive. And then finally, and I think this is a big one, um, legal permission is different than social behavior. So as America and the world opens up and Canada opens up at some point, et cetera, et cetera, there is a big difference between what the government says you can do and what people will do. So we kind of have this idea that, you know, Oh, everything's going to be back to normal. Well, it's probably going to be more graded than that. But let's just play a little game here. Let's just imagine that everything goes back to normal now. Like as you're listening to this podcast, you shut it off and you're like, there's no more restrictions. So you can gather in your church fully, pack it out. You can go to football stadiums, concerts, crushing crowds. You can fly anywhere in the world, zero restrictions. There can be lines at restaurants with people waiting to get in. And uh, you can go to a crowded beach. So uh, let's just say legally that's all permissible, which it probably isn't by the time you hear that. But question, what if people don't want to do that anymore? I mean, do you want the middle seat on a flight to L.A.? I mean, you probably never did, but airlines are now even taking middle seats out. Do you want to be next to the guy at the NFL game who just sloshed his beer all over you and coughed all the way through the second quarter? Didn't think so. Do you want to walk into a supermarket, go down a really crowded frozen food aisle and then stand painfully close to people at the checkout? No. You see, one of the interesting trends I think you have to monitor is even if people can gather will they want to? Or will they want to at least in the same way? Or what about older people you're trying to serve? Uh, What if they're going to be basically in some form of lockdown or quarantine for a year or two, or just have to be more socially distanced than others? You see, which toggles us all back to the other points. In an uncertain world, online is a lifeline and agility is a superpower. So if you really care about people, you want to stay agile. It's really hard to go back to normal when normal disappeared. Just some things to think about. It's what I'm thinking about a lot these days. I'm enjoying this segment. If you are, hey, let me know. Hit me up on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Very active on Instagram these days. I'm Kerry Newhoff there. See Newhoff on Twitter and Facebook. We are back with a fresh episode next time. I so appreciate you. Know that we are 100% behind you. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad we're in this together. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.